Thank you, Henry, and um, it's a great privilege to be preaching at the Lord's Day service. But before I read scripture and preach on the word, um, I'd like to begin with prayer. So just going to commit this whole time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, and it's always a great privilege to be around fellow Christians and sit under your word. Lord, we thank you for what Henry taught us earlier this morning, and Lord, thank you for another chance to hear from you in your word. Lord, I ask for your help. I have nothing, I've got nothing to give, but it's all by your spirit that any power comes from tonight. And Lord, we pray that we would experience your Holy Spirit in action as he works through your word in the hearts of and minds of people. We pray, Father, that he would be really working powerfully tonight, that our hearts and minds would be attuned to Jesus and be amazed at the compassion of Christ. Please, Father, would he be at work, and would you help your people to adore you more in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the text I have chosen to preach on is Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. And you'll find this in the church Bibles on page 1050, 1050. So that's Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say on to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this, these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so I wonder what characteristic of God charms you most. His loving nature, his sovereignty, his graciousness, his kindness. 
So we heard from earlier today in the open time that one of the things that we appreciate most about God is his faithfulness. The fact that God is a trustworthy character and he follows through what he has said in his word. And in the record of scripture, we see hundreds of promises fulfilled over thousands of years, all to the wondrous benefit of his church. And that's a beautiful thing to meditate on. Um, I had some time to think about what I was going to preach on, and I'm grateful for that. And I thought it was fitting to speak on the characteristic which endears me most to God, because we see it manifested in Christ as recorded in the Bible, and also because of some of the things that I've been going through recently in my life. And that characteristic is compassion. So this was the first text that warmed my heart to God when I was in primary school. One of my friends was really upset and sad because... One of her beloved grandmums has died, and I comforted her with this text. And since from then on, this scripture, particularly verses 42 and 43, really warmed my heart to God. It's carried me through to this day. And compassion is a beautiful characteristic to possess, because of all the things that you would want most in a partner or a close friend is compassion. Um, For the Christian, there is no closer friend or partner than Christ. And our Lord is full of compassion. And when he revealed himself most clearly to Moses in the Old Testament, how did he describe himself? He said, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Our God is a compassionate God. And I realize I haven't defined what compassion is, which is super important. So nowadays people understand compassion as a joining of two words, com and the old variation of passion is patty from the Latin. And what that meant was with suffering or with pain. And the idea is that you feel someone's pain when they're going through it. But often it's backed up with action. So it's empathy followed with action. And I think that fits well with what the New Testament describes compassion is. There's a beautiful word in the Greek. And for those who do medicine, um, you might have a bit of a head start, but it's splanchizomai. Um, if you look at the prefix, splanch versus splanchnich, which means the gut. And what it means is this gut-wrenching feeling. You see something shocking, it feels like you've been punched in the gut. And, you go, oh. and that's, beautifully, it's only used for, about Christ. The word compassion is only ever regarded as Christ looking at the crowds. No one else has ever been mentioned with that word. And there are many aspects in Jesus' life where we see his compassion, but none more fully than his death on the cross in the place of sinners. And it's in full view in this text. So my first point in this sermon is the compassion of Christ for the thief. And I'll mainly be focusing on verses 42 and 43. Um, But to help us to understand his compassion, we need a bit of context. And most of us are familiar with the lead-up into Christ's crucifixion. It's quite infamous. Um, It's often recalled as the darkest day when the worst of humanity was shown. So we see from verse 32 on in this chapter... Um, There's an assortment of characters that are involved here. So you see the vast mob. There are thousands, if not hundreds, of people there. And these were people who celebrated the coming of Jesus only a week before in Palm Sunday. They said, Hosanna to the king. They were celebrating. And now they turned their back onto him by saying, crucify him in a space of a week. It's astonishing. With the crowd, you have Pilate and the Romans. Um whom eventually sentenced him to death, but viewed Jesus as no more as an inconvenient rebel. The chief priests and the elders, along with the people, um, cried out with lust to get Jesus crucified. And then Jesus' closest followers, 
one of which promised to be with him to death, all departed and deserted him in his time of need. So in all intents and purposes, Jesus was going through the most difficult time of his earthly life, all alone. And this on the background of a night of flogging. Remember what happened to Jesus before he went to the cross? Sentenced by Pilate to be flogged and then to be executed. So hours during the night being beaten and flogged and stripped of skin because of whippings. And then to be given the final sentence by a Gentile, not even a Jew, was the most humiliating execution of all. People often regard this as like the most senseless and agonizing death they've ever heard. Why would Jesus go through such a thing when he could have avoided it by denying that he was the son of God? He could have fled from the situation at Gethsemane when he was tempted to flee. Or he could have asked his heavenly father to blow away the opposition in one fell swoop. Well, any one of these three things, and he would have avoided all this pain and suffering, and he would have been off the hook and saved his own skin. But to understand why Jesus went through all of this, we are tremendously helped by Luke's gospel when he introduces us to the two thieves on the cross. They were sentenced with Jesus by death, by crucifixion. And this is point, part A of my point one, and this is the dire predicament of the thief. So elsewhere in Mark's gospel, he tells us the crimes they were committed. So we don't see it in Luke, but we see it in Mark. And they were charged with the crime of theft. Now in today's society, we think that would be an abhorrent and unjust sentence to sentence someone to death for the crime of theft. Way too extreme, too disproportionate for such a minor crime. And I think this is where modern society gets things so wrong. When we think lightly of crime, people often think, he's only stole something worth £100. No, no one's hurt by it, so this is completely wrong and abhorrent. But actually, God thinks that just penalty is worse than just death by execution for theft. It's a lifetime sentence of eternal punishment in hell, as Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6, and he lists some of the crimes that will keep someone out from the kingdom of heaven and for an eternity in hell if not repented of, one of which is theft. So it's very serious in God's sight. And even a pagan like Pilate had the good sense to know how severe a crime of theft is when dealing with matters of law and jurisprudence as to sentence them to capital punishment. And we forget that the ultimate reality of justice and morality it's not what we think is right, but it's God's holy and perfect law and standards. So we, res- we think what's right is what we think is right or what society accepts. But that's not true. The standard of moral perfection is God's perfect laws as reflected as from his perfect character. And the outrage of today is that people can think that they can get away with sin and break the laws of a thrice holy God and have no retribution whatsoever. And that any punishment for this is completely unjustified and makes God evil if he carries out his justice. And God is so right to pour out his wrath and fury on people who display such arrogance. The rubble on, this cro- on the cross here would have known the basic moral principles and the way that the things work. So it's clear from day one in the scriptures that the penalty for sin is death. Remember what was said by God in the garden, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. From then on, the terms of morality have been clear. You sin, you die, and the, cro- the thief on the cross would have known about it. And this is backed up by what's said in Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. You sin, you die. It's as simple as that. And I'm really horrified because people don't understand or agree with this basic moral principle. To compound the thief situation... 
Again, I'm relying on Mark's gospel here. It's in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, that it records that both these revile him. So it doesn't say it in here in Luke's gospel, but in Mark's gospel it says both the thieves, crucified on the right and the left, reviled Jesus as they were hanging together on the cross. Now there's a very famous saying that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And I think it's come to light in terms of what politicians have been under the fire of lately. Um, there's this indecent hypocrisy when people get all puffed up and fired up and lambast um, something wrong done by another person when they have been charged guilty of the very crime that they're lambasting. And this is exactly what the thief was doing in Mark's Gospel, reviling him for being guilty of an execution when he himself was executed. And to make things worse, it's not only the crime that was committed, hypocrisy and also um, doing something that deserved execution in the first place. It's also the person who is sinning against in the first place. So he's sinning against the Son of God. So not only is the crime important regarding how someone should be punished, it's also the person that you do against. There's no worse person to sin against than the infinite Son of God. Some say that Mark and Matthew's Gospel, um, when they record that the robbers both mocked and revived Jesus, whilst Luke's Gospel doesn't mention anything, shows that the Gospels contradict each other and are not to be trusted. But no, I think something more profound is going on here. Um, during those six hours when Jesus hung on that cross the robber looked at how Jesus behaved and spoke and how he acted as he was hanging there and the Holy Spirit must have opened his eyes to see something beautiful he saw what Jesus was achieving on that cross and he was not reviling back that's Jesus when he was on the cross but he entrusted himself to the goodness of his father's will and then he realizes that this is God's only begotten son the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, John 1.29. And as that thief is hanging there on the cross, in excruciating pain himself, struggling to breathe, in agonizing pain, as he lifts himself from the ankles, which are nailed with hammers, uh, hammered with nails, he has nothing to give. And he recognizes that, rebukes the other criminal for making cheap insults of Jesus, who himself was probably trying to take the last pleasures of life. So he himself is hanging on the cross dying, but gives him pleasures to insult Jesus with a few more insults before he dies. So that's the state of that criminal. But this criminal has a different perspective. He rebukes the other criminals because he recognizes that Jesus is completely innocent. And then he says something very humble, and it's the mark of a true convert. He says in verse 42, or 41 even, we indeed justly... um, 40. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? For we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. So this man is saying, we've done things wrong that are deserving of death. We, we deserve to die. And that is the mark of a true convert, where someone's willing to humble himself before God, lifting up his hands and say, I know I've sinned. I deserve to die. And that is so beautiful to see and humble and he realizes later on that Jesus is the king when he says Jesus remember me when you go into your kingdom and he realizes that he is his only hope left 
And the beauty of this moment is only surpassed by what Jesus says next in response to the thief. And this is part 1B, the beautiful hope of Christ. So Jesus has just been relentlessly insulted by this man for the past six hours. He's just gone through a night of flogging. Now he's been executed. And now he's experiencing the wrath of his father to add on to his sorrows and sufferings. How do you respond to that man if you were Jesus when he says, Jesus, remember me? when you enter into your kingdom. I think a modern-day illustration might help to compare and contrast what we would do versus what Jesus did. And the analogy is this. Say you're an emergency doctor, and you just work to the end of a hard 12-hour shift, and all of a sudden there comes someone who's a notorious anti-vaxxer, comes in really sick with COVID, and is in desperate need of your medical expertise or else he dies. It's been on record by saying that those who have administered vaccines are murderers, maligning you and your team. And remember that the ED doctor I've just described, his plight is less than what Jesus went through on the cross. And what's our initial heart attitude and response? I think I could think of five things that we're tempted to think. One thing we might think to that man is, you reap what you sow. Another thing is, you've got your just desserts, now you suffer the consequences. Three, not my problem, someone else can deal with you. Four, begrudgingly treat him, but thinking he's a waste of space and resources. Or five, feel morally superior, superior and feeling self-righteous and say, bet you feel like an idiot now. So we can extrapolate those sentiments into this situation with what Jesus could have done as he was speaking with the crucified thief on the cross. That man called Christ a failed Messiah, a failed saviour, one who couldn't carry out his mission of saving God's people, but died ignominiously in the process. I think if we carry that sentiment through, Jesus could have said, well, to hell with you. I'm not going to save you. But how does the Holy Son of God respond to the man who's minutes from death and in, eternal, in the danger of eternal torment? And it's with words that every one of us could die to. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Promise that on this very day, you'll be with Christ forever in paradise for all eternity. And this is one of the many beautiful promises that God gives us in the Bible for a Christian. And it shows the heart of Christ towards beleaguered and undeserving Christians who don't deserve a scrap of God's sympathy. We don't deserve a single good thing from God. And yet this is the heart of Christ towards his people. So in Romans 5.1, and these, this is a beautiful verse that one of my good friends said that I kept him. It's, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And later down in verse 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that just shows the beauty of God's heart for us. But even though whilst we were still his enemies, hating him in our hearts, rebelling against him in our lives, he still loved us with an everlasting love. And he showed that by giving himself up for the cross. And there is a sad character of God which needs to be called out, which paints God out to be a sadistic torturer who takes delight in sending people to hell and then watching them suffer for all eternity. It needs to be called out. And this is an immature backlash of people who refused to accept that they deserve to go to hell question is, is that how God feels? Is that what the Bible says? And I think just the next few verses will just blow that out of the water. 
So even in the Old Testament, as a lot of non-Christians are not a fan of, says in Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And later in chapter 33, he says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And from these verses, and there's so many more else in the Bible, it's clear that God's desire is not for people to perish in hell, but he wants to save them. He wants them to repent from their sins and be saved. And to say that God is delighted at people going to hell is a slanderous misaccusation against the good and holy God. And how is God delighted in sending image bearers to eternal destruction? It's not true. And as Henry preached a week ago at the visitor's service, God is imploring all men everywhere to get right with him through his son, Jesus. Remember, it's what it said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We appeal to you as Christ's ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. That is God's heart attitude. And so don't let anyone else make you think differently. Okay, so that's point um, one, the compassion of Christ for the thief. Point two is something that I think is, needs to be preached, and it's the compassion of Christ for us. So point one is compassion of Christ for the thief. Point two is compassion of Christ for us. The first point I want to say from this one is it's the dire predicament of us. So it's very easy to read the story in isolation and say, well, that's very nice for him. And I think it has no bearings on us whatsoever today. That we don't have to have the compassion of Jesus 2,000 years after he died. Uh, the stark reality is, you need this man, uh, you need Jesus, and you are in no better position than that crucified thief. Because the eternal principles that were true 2,000 years ago for that thief is still true today. Namely, God is holy, we are not. God is the maker of heaven and earth, we are his creatures. He's given us his law, we have broken it. He is the eternal judge of all people, and we have sinned against him. And guilty sinners will spend an eternity in hell. All those things apply to us as it did back to that thief 2,000 years ago. And so this idea that Jesus' compassion is not for us today is blown out of the water. You need him. So it's a very unpopular point that what the Bible says so clearly is that all men are sinners. I think today in our society... There's this constant push to say encouraging and positive stuff about people. Oh, that person's a good person. Oh, do, do you not really appreciate that? And try to upbuild each other. And sometimes it's good to do that. But to portray people as fundamentally good is a serious error because the Bible says something so different. Romans 3.23 says, All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we just do a simple self-analysis we'd realize very quickly that that is true. Okay, um, if we ask ourselves, how many lies have you told? People will say at least hundreds or thousands over their lifetime. I suspect that's a severe underestimation. How many times have we dishonored God's name by saying Jesus Christ flippantly? Most people in society will have said it at least probably on a weekly basis, and so that's a violation of the third commandment. And how many times have we cussed or cursed our parents? That's the fifth commandment. And so you notice that this pile of sins is adding up against you. And now you know that you're a sinner who's going to face the holy judge of all the earth. People deny it, but eternal 
judgment is a reality. It's a reality because God makes it clear in his word. What God says in the scripture is true, whether you believe it or not. But also, if that's not convincing enough, we have to realize we live in a moral universe. And in a moral universe, nothing makes sense except in light of eternal judgment. So, people, if we compare and contrast, for example, the most moral person you've ever thought of, and Hitler, that if there is no eternal judgment, both of them will have the same end. They'll meet in the grave, and humanity will be extinct one day. And what you have to conclude is, ultimately, though they have completely different characteristics, they have the same net effect on humanity, which makes a mockery of justice, and why eternal judgment is true. Otherwise, the idea of morality is nonsense, and we can give up on this characterization of good or evil. So we know that eternal judgment is coming. We know these things to be true. And if we know it to be true, and we're in infinite danger, what are we to do? And that's where I move on to the beautiful hope of Christ. Not for the thief now, but for us. So how do people try to deal with this infinite problem of facing to a holy judge? Most religions will say, try to make it back up to God by doing good deeds, do as many religious acts, do acts of charity, do good things, and perhaps God might forgive you of all of it. Paul told us a sermon a while ago that viewed this as ridiculously futile. I think it's so effective that I'll relay it on to um, tonight's sermon. And the fact is, we have no idea about how much debt we are in against God. Each time our heart beats, each time we breathe, each time we live, is something to give thanks to God for. Each good gift, each moment of grace, each moment of mercy is something that we got to give thanks to God for. Because this is God's universe, God's earth, God's planet, God's creation, God's molecules, God's air. You are given it all by God's grace, and you ought to give him thanks for that. And if we do the math, right, I'm 28. Average, 60 beats per minute of my heart, times that by 60 to get the number of beats per hour, times that by 24 for a day, times that by 365 for a year, and times that by my age, 28. And that comes to 883,000 and 883,008,000. So 8830080000. And I've rarely given thanks to God, the beat of my heart. And trying to pay that back with a good deed here and a good deed there is like what Paul said, trying to pay the national debt, which is actually over $2 trillion, with your own piggy bank that you had as a kid. It's absolutely ridiculous and laughable. And it's a, it's a crying shame that most people believe this. They think that by their good deeds, they can pay back the sin debt that they owe to God. And just a demonstration of this just shows how ridiculous it is. You cannot do it. Other people, the other way that people do it is deny God and deny eternal judgment and live on as if there's no God. But you all know this to be false. As, as, as I said again, the idea of eternal judgment and hell is necessary for any meaning of justice. You know that by your finite nature, and you know it more because God has said it in his word. So, refusing to believe in judgment actually doesn't change the reality of it. People can say, I don't believe in judgment, I don't believe in hell. But that doesn't change the reality of it. God has said, and it will happen. Given that that's the truth, there is only one way. We can't work for it ourselves. We've just seen the futility of it. We can't deny it because it's true. There's only one way, an infinitely better way, and it's Christ's way and his death on the cross. And this is where the gospel is so beautiful to our 
agonizingly huge sin debt. Because as we saw on this cross, and Jesus explains it, and this is how Jesus can say to that thief who committed crimes worthy of death, you will be with me in paradise, that when he died on that cross, he was taking the sins of all the people who trusted him. That every bitter thought, every nasty word, every evil action, be paid for him on that cross. And that because of that, that sinner can go free because Jesus has taken it all. Complete forgiveness now and forever so that when we stand before God on Judgment Day, it'll be a clean slate, complete forgiveness, and we'll be in the right with him forever. But not only does the gospel of Christ give you that eternal forgiveness that everyone needs before a holy God, it gives you worldly spiritual gifts as well. If you go, I mean, life in this world, you experience the spiritual blessings. So in Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms in the whole Bible, it says in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. So a Christian, if he's believing in Christ, can go through the most appalling situation in life, the most terrible suffering, the valley of the shadow of death, and they can be in a situation where they do not fear, one of complete peace. Why? Because God is with them. And that's what, what happened <coughs> when we were saved through the gospel. Suddenly we would turn from God's enemies into his friends, and God is with us, indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. And that verse, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The question that we can ask you tonight is, could you die in peace if you were experiencing the same thing the thief was facing? Agonizing death, suffering, humiliation, and just an impending knowledge that you're heading for judgment. And then you hear those beautiful words of Jesus. Truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. I think for the Christian, it's a beautiful thing. This is what Christ achieved for us in his compassion. We didn't deserve it, but that is something so beautiful. And I think the society would do so well to believe this. There's a push in this country, this is slightly going off point, but I think it's necessary to say, where people are trying to legalize assisted dying. Now, David's done a brilliant job in fighting it, but if we try to understand the mentality behind why people want to legalize assisted suicide, because people face difficult and very challenging circumstances. You hear the stories of people agonizing in their ailments or tremendously troubled in soul or overwhelmed with mental difficulties and they don't know how to handle suffering and they don't know how to die well. They're frightened of the process of death and the fact that they don't know where they're going to go after it. And they want to be in complete control. That's why they want their terms on this important aspect of life. We should take pity as Christians because we find in Hebrews 2 that actually this is the fear of death is something that Satan uses to entrap and slave people. It says that since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And that matches up what we see today. People are terrified of death, terrified of the road to death, and they just want to leave on their terms. But that's because they don't know how to suffer well, and they don't know where they're going. And that's why what Christ did on the cross is so compassionate, because in Christ we know where we're going, and we know how to handle that road that leads to death. 
because we have a shepherd that will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's why um, people, even though 2,000 years after Christ, need that same compassion of Christ on that cross. And so I'm going to draw this talk to a close and ask a few questions. Do you know this compassion of Christ for yourself? Do you know it personally and deeply? That when Christ died on that cross, he was paying for your sins, that you do not no longer have to fear the process that leads to death, nor where you're going afterwards, no matter what situation you're in. And that comes only by believing in Christ and through the gospel. But if not, then, as Henry said last week, be reconciled to God now. Come to God now and receive that compassion that Christ so freely gives. If you are a Christian, do you know this compassion more deeply? It's a very beautiful... Henry often prays it in prayer in Ephesians 3, where Paul is praying for the Christians, that the Holy Spirit would strengthen them. They might know the magnificent and vast love that God has for his, his believers. It's too big for any Christian to comprehend. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand it more. So as Christians, do you know it? Do you know the compassion of Christ? And do you know it more and more and more until you are overwhelmed by it? And does it play a factor in the way you live your life? The compassion that Christ shows for us on the cross should fill our hearts with love towards God. If we really understand that we were on our way to hell, which Jesus explains is a terrible, agonizing and hopeless situation, full of torment, where the rich man says, get me out of here, and he has no hope. That's what Jesus saved you from. And he, gave, he saved you from it by giving up his only life, his, his life. And if you really believe that, you can have nothing but love for God. And if that is in your heart, then it extends to people. Do you have a compassion for people the way that Christ showed it to the thief and so many people during his earthly life? And for the non-Christian, I hope today you saw from the passage just how wonderful and compassionate God is. A lot of people run from God because they think that I'm not good enough. I've encountered people like this myself. Where people have said, I'm too bad for God. Why would God ever want me? But here is, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit included this in Scripture. That even a man on death row, as bad as he was, was given forgiveness. And so don't think you have to sort out your life to get right with God or receive his compassion. Christ is waiting, and all you have to do is to humble yourself before Christ, like this thief did. Accept that you're a sinner, you deserve death, and then trust in Jesus as your king.